3: Just over a year ago, after months of accusations and flat denials about whether Russia was about to go to war, Vladimir Putin sat down behind a polished desk in the Kremlin late at night to address the nation. With a flag of Russia behind him and a bank of telephones to his left, as if he might pick up the receiver and order an invasion at any moment, Putin looked into the camera and delivered a rambling hour-long speech in which he claimed Ukraine wasn't a real country.
4: понимать что украина по сути никогда не имела устойчивой традиции своей подлинной государственности начиная с 1991 пошла по пути
3: Putin attacked the Ukrainian identity, its sense of nationhood, he rewrote its history and claimed the country had no right to exist. By the time his speech finished, just before midnight, the world knew that war was coming. Within days, on the 24th of February, it came.
4: The dawn chorus that no one wants to hear, air raid sirens in Kyiv, signalling that the full-scale invasion of a European country in the year 2022 was well underway.
0: Ukraine calls this strike, which hit a maternity hospital in Mariupol, a war crime.
3: In the year that followed, the world and the Kremlin, who thought the war would be over in days, have been stunned by the strength of the Ukrainians' will to protect their country, their language, and their values.
1: Many going back to fight, like husband and wife Alexander and Maria, have no military experience, just the love for their country.
3: Across Ukraine, ordinary people gave up their comfortable lives to fight for their country. One of Ukraine's most famous bands cancel their American tour and enlisted in the army instead. As their lead singer appeared in the streets of Kiev, wearing a military uniform and singing this song of resistance it became an anthem for the country. If this was a war for Ukraine's culture and identity, then both were fighting back. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from the Times and the Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, borscht, books, and ballet. The battle for Ukraine's identity.
5: My name is Catherine Philp. I'm a foreign correspondent for The Times. I have spent the last three weeks or so in Ukraine. I've been coming and going very regularly since the invasion last year, and I've come back to see how things are a year on from the invasion.
3: And Catherine, you've been in the city of Sumy up in the northeast, not far from from the Russian border. Just take us back to this time last year, you know, as all the the rumours that had been swirling around were suddenly solidified into a full-scale invasion.
5: Well, we went to the city of Sumy and then from there went up to the Russian border. And it was there near a village called Slavorod, where the Russian tanks crossed on the morning of the 24th of February. And it took them some time to to realise that this was the Russian invasion. But the tanks came south and half of them came towards the capital, Kyiv. So Sumy has sort of gone down in Ukrainian folklore for the resistance that was put up by locals, most of whom volunteered that very same day. And they stopped the Russians from getting into the, the city of Sumy itself. And it was in the New Year's Day address by President
2: Zelensky. He
5: singled out the defenders of Sumi and the civilians as being the bone in the throat of the Russian invasion. And the reason for going there was that there's, there's been multiple warnings that as the anniversary was coming up that the Russians would attempt some kind of renewed offensive that might look something like last year's invasion.
3: And Catherine, give us a sense of what resistance in Sumi looked like. I mean, that was such a, an amazing line from President Zelensky about being the bone in the throat of mm. Russia's attempts. What was it about Sumi that captured a bit of the spirit of the place?
5: I think it's simply that they just did not have the military resources there that other other places had. There were 50 paratroopers in the entire province. Those were the only professional soldiers they had. And so people got together and made their own molotov cocktails and, and destroyed an extraordinary number of Russian tanks. There was something like 300 Russian tanks that crossed that border, and I think some 130, I was told, were taken out by civilians, some of which actually have been rescued and repurposed. We also visited a a mechanised battalion who were all driving armoured fighting vehicles that had been captured by the Russians and reconditioned by the Ukrainians. So they had all been repainted in camouflage and the Z that the Russians had put on the side was nowhere to be seen. They were now imprinted with the Ukrainian trident and the Ukrainian flag and uh, they're very proud of them. They called them trophy tanks that they they have taken from the Russians in this way and, and will now be using against them. There's a lot of stories of resistance like this that have sort of entered popular myth, and they very much sort of speak to this David and Goliath narrative of the Ukrainians standing up to the Russians. I think around the world,
3: the image of Ukraine was probably set the moment they started seeing just that groundswell of resistance. They saw the Molotov cocktails, they Mm. saw the grandmother knocking out a drone with a jar of pickles. And a lot of that has sort of helped to establish I think the reputation and just the sort of the respect people have for Ukraine, for Ukrainians who you've spoken to, how much has it helped to set a sense of Ukrainian identity?
5: Um, In the past, you've seen sort of surges in consciousness of Ukrainian identity that has gone along with each of their attempts to separate themselves more completely from Russia and turned towards Europe. So you had the Orange Revolution in 2004.
1: Hundreds of thousands of pro-democracy Ukrainians in the streets today protested against the results of the presidential election, pitting their candidate, the West-leaning challenger Viktor Yushenko, against the pro-Moscow mm-hmm. Moscow Prime Minister Viktor Yanukovych.
5: You had the Maidan Revolution in 2014.
1: Well, in the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, thousands of demonstrators are blockading government buildings, demanding the resignation of the government. The protests follow President Viktor Yanishevkov's refusal to sign a deal on closer ties with the EU. But you
5: see more flags, more blue and yellow everywhere than you ever did, even in petrol stations along the motorways in the country, the coffee cups. Are blue and yellow and have slogans on them like bravery is in our DNA, is one of them, and be brave like Ukraine, that's another one. It is a sense of identity and a celebration of the things that are Ukrainian and distinctly Ukrainian. But even in the circumstances where Russia would claim that these things were Russian, Ukrainians have sought to reclaim those and put that stamp on them. These are signals of Ukrainian identity.
3: Well, Catherine, I want you to tell us a bit about those in in just a moment, because you've been writing quite a lot about Ukrainian cultural life at the moment, which Mm. I think is fascinating, because actually, it's such an interesting prism to look at this war through, partly because if you listen to President Putin's speeches at the start, it did feel like identity was quite core to, to the reason Russia claimed they were invading. Just talk
5: us through that a bit. Yes, it's it's actually, it's a very peculiar part of this aggression from Putin because obviously he doesn't like the idea of a separate Ukrainian identity because it would underline Ukraine's case to exist as a separate state. I mean, identity is about history, culture, language, all of those things. And a year before the war, Putin had actually published this quite extraordinary and rather overlooked 5,000 word essay on how Ukraine didn't really exist as a country and historically is just an extension of Russia and ought to belong to it. And in fact, uh, he's really in in many ways stoked the Ukrainian sense of identity and started to sever the ties that do exist between the two countries. Uh, I, mean, I know quite a few native Russian speakers who simply won't speak the language anymore. Really? Which is an extraordinary development if you think about it, if that was the language they grew up speaking.
3: Quite ironic if President Putin was trying to reestablish a sense of Russian identity in Ukraine, it seems to have had the opposite effect. What do we know about the areas that were under Russian control for a while? How have they gone about mm. trying to strengthen that sense of
5: Russianness? By force, if necessary. It's a process of Russification. So you've seen things happen like statues of Ukrainian figures. Those have been taken down in many of the places under Russian occupation. And statues of Lenin have been put up. They have introduced the Ruble. You can no longer use the Ukrainian Krivna, the currency. The school curriculum has been changed, so that teaching only takes place in the Russian language. The shops will be stocked with Russian goods that have been imported from Russia and have Russian writing on them. Ukraine's government says that 1.8 million Ukrainians have been taken into Russia for relocation, re-education. Amongst that are some several thousand children, some of whom have been adopted by Russian families. So it's really a really wholesale an attempt to crush that sense of Ukrainian nothing in those areas.
3: And Catherine, you've been to Ukraine a number of times over the past year since the war broke out. Just give us a sense of how much the culture has changed. If you were to sort of go into a bookshop, for example, can you still buy books in
5: Russian? I believe they can be found, but they are difficult to find. And in fact, there's one particular bookstore in Kiev that actually before the war, they cut their Russian language section over time over a few years until, They decided to just stop selling it altogether. And then after the invasion began, people came to them and said, why don't you go a step further? Why don't you get rid of Russian language books? And so they started collecting them from libraries, from schools and from individuals and sending them to be pulped at a recycling plant outside the city. And then the money that they get from that, they have channeled back into charities. Supporting the Ukrainian army, we went to see this. Uh, these books being published, it was extraordinary because you sort of felt quite a strange emotional reaction towards seeing books being destroyed. It's sort of yeah. I was going to say, it feels like it's almost gone too far. It felt very wrong. Um, I, I I didn't. Like it myself, I have to say, but I can sort of understand why this is happening. But it wasn't just you know Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and, and it was being pulped. It was it even included chick lit and pulp fiction from America that had been translated into Russian. It was really? just the word of yeah the, of the Russian language that was being destroyed. You work for a bookshop, <laughs> and yet you're getting rid of books. It's quite a it's uh, it's unusual right uh, actually we do not destroy them at all yeah <laughs> so we just recycle down them, them. And, uh, yeah, that's more uh, about emotional it's
4: emotional
5: context emotional so you don't feel like you're destroying books uh, no 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 <laughs> And then this paper goes off to be remade into things like egg cartons and cardboard sleeves you get on coffee cups and toilet paper, (laughs) things like that. So so all these books will be reused.
3: And how extensive is this sort of, you know, cross-cultural life? Talks through food, for example, is that being impacted?
5: With food, I think it's more like reclamation of what is Ukrainian. So the national dish here is borscht, which is a, a soup that, uh, of which there are some 300 varieties apparently. There's lots of different ways to make it. It's like the cream tea debate. People can become <laughs> very passionate about the presence or absence of sour cream or beans or meat in your
4: borscht. Yeah. Yeah. For, for us, it's like something else. And even after the first uh, night, yeah, start to be wife and husband. Wedding night. Uh, wedding night, and they st- first what they do, they start to discuss which recipe of what they will cook. Because uh, you have to tell that I don't like to put beans in the borscht. And if you will cook borscht with the beans, I will not eat it. Like, totally, I will not. I will not.
0: Let's
5: just... But uh, it was about three or four years ago, someone within the Russian government referred to borscht as a Russian dish and, and something that was part of Russian heritage. And this, prompted uh, Ukraine's most famous chef, who is a sort of, he's a TV chef. Probably the closest you'd come is Jamie Oliver, because he's actually undertaken the same campaign (laughs) against unhealthy food in schools as Jamie Oliver has done. He set about saying, this is outrageous.
4: When UCSA started in 1917, uh, Russia all the time wanted to take everything from from us. And uh, they they took our land, they took our people, they wanted to take from us our church, language, and all the things. And uh, obviously they uh, took our food.
5: Borsh is Ukrainian and we must prove it is so. And so he traveled all around Ukraine, compiling all these different recipes, finding places that were named after borsh or people who had borsh in their name and he assembled a huge dossier that he presented to unesco the united nations cultural agency to prove (laughs) that borsh was ukrainian and unesco recognized it as an intangible cultural asset of ukrainian origin
4: you have to understand that in Ukraine we are fighting for the 500 years for our identity. Yeah. We're just fighting to understand who we are. We are just building brick by brick. We are trying to understand our history, we're trying to understand everything. And uh, food is a part of this… Uh, food is this
5: And this was seen as a great triumph. It's, I think it's only about the ninth food that, that UNESCO has ever recognised in this way, the latest of which is the French baguette.
3: Coming up, Ukraine's most famous novelist explains why the Ukrainian and Russian identities are so different. But first...
1: I'm Anthony Lloyd, Foreign Correspondent for The Times. I started reporting for The Times in 1993 from the Bosnian War. Since then, I've reported from Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Sierra Leone, and now Ukraine. I can only do this sort of reporting... Thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. You can subscribe today and support our journalism by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
3: center of Kyiv at the National Opera an orchestra warms up for a performance which will break new ground in its 156 year history and by doing so it takes up the mantle in the fight for
5: Ukraine's identity the snow is falling down thick in the middle of Kyiv as inside the dressing room at the National Opera uh, The dancers are getting ready for an extraordinary performance of the Snow Queen. Um, The first time this ballet will ever have been performed without the music of Tchaikovsky and Prokofiev, the Russian composers who make up so much of the classical canon. Ballet and opera houses around Ukraine have started to boycott Russian music. So Tchaikovsky and Prokofiev, avoiding him has become quite controversial because he actually does have Ukrainian roots. But nonetheless, he's been deemed to be a Soviet composer. And despite the fact there are no, there's no Russian language in that, it is simply music. Yeah. Much in the way, I suppose, that Wagner was used by the Third Reich. They see this as part of this sort of Russian cultural hegemony. That Ukrainians have felt has blotted out their culture for too long. We met the director of the ballet, Sergei Sku, who'd been there for since um before Ukraine got its independence. And I mean his view was that Tchaikovsky is very much a part of Russian culture and even Russian aggression and that they shouldn't uh, be supporting it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
5: So the ballet that we saw was actually a medley piece that was originally put together in Ukraine. Uh, it was the Snow Queen and they had taken all of that out and replaced it very creatively with, in in one case, uh, an overture from a, an opera, Cavaliera Rusticana, an Italian opera. But this was all to fill in the blanks left by the removal of the Tchaikovsky. If Putin was trying to break or erase Ukrainian identity and culture, he could really hardly have given it a greater boost.
3: Catherine, one of the other figures you've been speaking to about the cultural life of, of Ukraine is probably its most famous writer, Andrei Kirchhoff, who I'm a huge fan of. So I'm very jealous that you've been talking to him. But for people who haven't heard of him, just tell us a bit about him and his importance.
5: Well, firstly, he's just tremendously great fun. Uh, <laughs> he's so now I'm even more jealous. <laughs> He's just a lovely man. So, yes, Andrei Kirchhoff is 61, so just old enough to avoid military service here. But as Ukraine's greatest living writer sees another role for himself uh, since the war began, which is to tell people about Ukraine. Ironically, he's a writer in the surrealist, absurdist tradition of Russian writers like Gogol and Bulgarkov. Um, and he writes about the absurdity of life Firstly, he started writing when it was still the Soviet Union. And then after that, wrote really about what Ukrainian society was like after the collapse of communism and how bizarre it was. The most famous one is Death and the Penguin, which... is a
3: wonderful book.
5: It's a wonderful book with (laughs) the most extraordinary character, Misha the Penguin, in it. Since the war began, he put together a book called Diary of an Invasion which really tells the story of how the war has impacted the ordinary lives of ordinary Ukrainians and what it's like for very ordinary people to have their lives turned upside down by the war.
3: And it's interesting because Kirchhoff himself is is a Russian writer. He writes in Russian.
5: Absolutely. He's an ethnic Russian. That's what he calls himself. Born in in Russia. He is a Russian speaker and that is his first language and that's what he writes his novels in. He has not written nonfiction in Russian this time. He's written it in either Ukrainian or English.
3: And how does he sort of explain the difference? You know, somebody who is ethnically Russian, who was shaped by the Soviet Union, how does he explain the difference culturally between the Ukrainians and the Russians?
5: Kharkov, you sort of took me back to this pre-imperial life of Ukraine and talked to me about the way that they actually had political debate and elections and this kind of thing. And he he describes Ukrainians as anarchists.
4: Ukraine is not uh, a a quiet, obedient uh, country like Russia. I mean, you cannot sort of break Ukrainians or frighten them to death. They, uh, they're, an- they're anarchists. I mean, so, I mean, the society was a society of anarchists, which was uh, loosely controlled by the Cossacks elite and by the judges, but uh, uh, only loosely. Right. So, I mean, uh, yeah, everyone had his own opinion.
5: Whereas Russia, he would describe as a country that is more pliable, more long-suffering.
4: Putin became president. I mean, they just showed that for them stability is more important than freedom. Mm. So they accepted that people are imprisoned for sharing posts on Facebook mm-hmm. because people wanted him to be at Tsar. And Russians needed the Tsar always because Tsar is a symbol of stability.
3: And does he see similar differences, I suppose, cultural differences almost, between the leaders of both countries at the
5: moment? Yes, absolutely. I mean, on a very sort of immediate level, as you said to me, Zelensky is young and Putin is old.
4: Uh, A young president fighting the old president of old empire, uh, of course, I mean, uh, provokes much more support and sympathy Mm. uh, uh, than the old president attacking an independent country. Mm. So, I mean, when you compare Putin and Zelensky, you see that this is a war between the past and the future. Mm. Because, I mean, Putin belongs to the past. He runs the war like it was would be run in 20th century.
3: And in terms of the cultural picture, you know, in Kirchhoff's books like Death and the Penguin. He's writing about Ukraine when it's quite soon after the Soviet collapse. But you end up seeing a version of the country which you sort of have old gangland characters and quite a bit of corruption. Has this war changed some of that? I mean, is it a moment when it modernizes and it goes more towards Europe by turning its back on Russia? Or will some of that survive?
5: This is a process for Ukraine, and it's a path on which it's embarked in many ways. Uh, Now, corruption, obviously, possibly not on the level that Putin claims it is, at least in comparison with Moscow, at the very least. But corruption has always been a problem in Ukraine. But now Ukraine has been given candidate status for the European Union. It wants to join. It's got to tackle those issues and and that is i think very well understood in the corridors of power here so you have seen various bits of rejigging of governments and certain people removed who might have links to that kind of corruption Four senior Ukrainian officials resigned or were fired within a few hours today after President Zelensky vowed to purge his government of corruption. The
3: deputy head of in terms of
5: culturally turning towards Europe, I think that Ukraine's made it very clear the direction in which it's travelling, and and it's west. It is a country that talks very much about its commitment to Western. European ideals of democracy and freedom and does not want to be sucked back into a Russian orbit that embraces very different values.
3: From all the conversations that you've had with people in Ukraine, is there any sense of when they think it might end? Mm. Do you think we'll still be in middle of a war this time next year?
5: There's a lot of hope being placed on this year. And I think that that may be because people want that to be self-fulfilling, that Russia will be defeated this year. Ukraine doesn't trust Russia. So if Russia were to propose some kind of deal, it's hard to see how Ukraine would trust Russia to keep its word on anything that were agreed. Russia has broken every territorial agreement it's ever made with the Ukrainians. So I I think really there is an enormous fatigue, but there is a sense of you just have to keep going. And I think that most people don't look very far ahead. It's one day at a time within Ukraine.
3: It does feel like a lot of this war is a fight for the soul of Ukraine, for its identity, for where it chooses to identify itself, whether it's with the Western Europe or with Russia. Do you think when the war is over, will it have to have more of a normalization of its cultural relations with Russia? You know, this sort of process of de Russification. you can understand at the height of war, but is that healthy afterwards?
5: Well, a very good question, and is does the flowering of Ukrainian identity remain a unifying, benevolent thing, or is it dangerous towards minorities, for example? That's yet to be seen. I wouldn't say that pro-Ukrainian identity is on the level that Putin insists it is when he calls the the government neo-Nazis. There's no case for that. But I do think that, yes, Ukraine will have to normalise its relationship with Russia in the future, but that's really not possible as long as Russia is poised like a vulture to try and suck Ukraine back into at least its orbit at at worst uh, within its borders. Obviously. The emotions that have been unleashed in an invasion, yes, are behind some of these sort of more temporary de-Russification measures, which are really all grassroots rather than coming from the government. So I would expect that that will dissipate in the future. I think there will be a place for things like Russian music and Russian ballet again. But I don't think that in our lifetime Ukrainians will ever really trust the Russians. But they may let their books and their ballet back.
3: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Mandine Rana, and my guest, foreign correspondent for The Times, Catherine Philp. You can find all of Catherine's dispatches from Ukraine from this trip and over the past year at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. The producer today was Sam Chantarasak. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by David Crackles. If you can, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Have a lovely weekend.